This morning's scripture lesson comes from Ephesians 1, 11 through 23. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who are the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, and for this reason I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that, with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may perceive what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. God put this work to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all the things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of God for the people of God. What does it mean to be a saint? Right, today is All Saints Sunday, and uh, it's, it's an interesting one in, in the life of uh, Protestant churches because we don't use the t expression saint far beyond this one day. Right, that's something that uh, the, the Catholic Church does. Do we have saints? What does it mean for us to talk about saints? In fact, this, is, this particular holy day is one that, uh, that John Wesley, the founder of modern-day United Methodism, uh, cautioned churches against having uh, because for, for fear that it would uh, essentially turn the attention of the church back to the way that the Catholic Church uh, was worshiping saints uh, at the time. And so this is a, it's a complicated day for us to bring together, but... It's such a beautiful day when we really unpack what it means to be a saint. So in the uh, Catholic Church, those who receive the title of saint are persons who surrender to God, whose, whose direct surrender to God's love was so generous an approach to the total surrender of Jesus that the church recognizes them as heroes and heroines worthy to be held up for our inspiration. This is author uh, Leonard Foley, uh, who uh, wrote a book on uh, the saints of God. And he gives this definition, those whose lives so reflect the love of Christ that they become such uh, powerful examples for us. Now, uh, I've, I've learned uh, 
pretty recently exactly how complicated it is for a saint to be canonized in the Catholic Church. I mean, it's, it's a, a multi-step process of, of evaluation uh, and in order to get this title here. But we in the United Methodist Church and in Protestant churches uh, don't use this title the exact same way. Uh, in fact, beyond this title, we in the United Methodist Church call people saints because they exemplify the, the Christian life. Uh, and in this sense, every Christian can be considered a saint. Those who exemplify the Christian life. And we've got to be cautious here because we tend to uh, politicize what we mean by the Christian life. No, I'm not talking about people who don't cuss and drink. That's not what the United Methodist Church's position is on the Christian life. Whenever I say the Christian life, I mean those who live as little Christ. That's what the term Christian means, to be a little Christ or a follower or disciple of Christ. Those who follow in the way that Christ left for us. A life of love and compassion. A life of doing good works and helping the poor and marginalized and outcasts. In this way, every Christian can be considered a saint. And if we look at the origin of the word saint, we uh, might note that it comes from the Latin word sanctus, which means simply holy, a person who is holy. Now, you know, it's time to parse out some, uh, some dead languages for a moment here. So we're going to now go, after looking at the Greek sanctus, which means holy, we turn to the Greek word for holy, the one that also gets translated as saint in uh, our New Testament passage from Ephesians today, which is the Greek word hagios. And uh, I promise I'm not going to spend too much time beating up a dead language here, uh, but the word hagios uh, is, is a fascinating word. If ever you want to study Greek, I mean, there's some weird stuff that goes on there, but this one's uh, an interesting one. Hagios comes from the word root hagos, which means something awful. <laughs> but here's the problem. Uh, we in uh, modern English have misconstrued that word, awful, right? That has the connotation of being bad. But parse it out for a moment. The two, uh, the two parts of this word, awe, full. To be full of awe. Mesmerized, right? This kind of, this is, this is more about uh, what hagos is. And so uh, if we expand this into the Greek word hagios, it is an individual who is full of wonder, but full of wonder in a, a slightly different understanding of it. Uh, this is a person who is actually filled with something different. Okay, so, so when we're really taking apart the word holy here, the same word in Ephesians that gets translated as saint. This word means one who is set apart. It means otherness, to be different, to be consecrated for a purpose, to be different from the world. In other words, we believe that a saint is one who lives for God and not for this world. We believe a saint is one who lives a life set apart from what is easy and comfortable, a life with purpose. Our Ephesians passage speaks to the unity of all Christians as saints and implores that we experience 
Three things. I love it whenever a passage gives a very clear three-point sermon. Hope, glorious inheritance, and God's power toward us. If you want to see the direct reference to this, it's verses 18 and 19 of our passage. We start with the experience of the hope to which God has called us. Now, hope is an interesting concept. Anybody here ever see the movies The Hunger Games? Yeah? Yeah, yeah, a couple of nods out there. Um, fascinating dystop future dystopian society. Uh, in, in this movie, there is the clear antagonist, President Snow. And President Snow uh, is a fascinatingly cunning individual. He very astutely observes that hope is the only thing stronger than fear and uses this as the basis for why the Hunger Games take place. Hope is the only thing stronger than fear. Hope means there's something to live for. Hope mean that, means that there is something more than our current experiences. It is future-oriented. It is taking us to something beyond where we are now. In the counseling world, uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm also a licensed therapist. In the counseling world, whenever a therapist encounters a client who has some intention to harm themselves, the very first thing that a therapist is going to do is help that person identify hope. What is worth living for? Ephesians teaches us that saints recognize and understand the hope to which they have been called. And what is this hope? Eternal salvation is what Ephesians will call that, the hope of eternal salvation. But I think that's kind of a bland way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, that's right, I said it. Eternal salvation sounds kind of boring to me. Yikes, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. So I want to rephrase it in a different way. It is the hope of unending love, of perfect love belongingness, of everlasting peace, of eternal joy. That hope. That is the hope that we live for, the hope that saints embody. Then our Ephesians passage turns us to the riches of God's glorious inheritance among the saints. Now, the inheritance that God provides is something that we have to look back towards the beginning of Ephesians to understand. Right? The, the inheritance here is going to be a very uh, difficult word for us to, to unpack because of its implications. But if we look back uh, towards the beginning of Ephesians, well, the very beginning of Ephesians, uh, we are told that we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before God in love. We are told that we were destined for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of God's will, to the praise of God's glorious grace that God freely bestowed on us in Christ. We are told that we have redemption through Jesus' blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace that God lavished on us. This is Ephesians uh, verses 3 through 9 uh, that unpack what this inheritance really is. The inheritance that we have with the saints is a life of forgiveness to live for holiness now 
and an eternal life established in the praise of God's grace and glory. But here's the real kicker. An inheritance is not something we deserve at all, like by any stretch of the word inheritance. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had to experience this. I really hope not. But one of the messiest things to witness is a family fall apart over the last will and testament of their recently deceased loved one. It's bonkers how that can happen. Because some people feel they deserve more than they receive. When in actuality, an inheritance is an act of grace. Some people get so upset over the way that an inheritance is distributed whenever it's not really theirs to actually claim. An inheritance is an act of grace. An inheritance is given for the benefit of others out of that grace. Meaning, what God has done and is doing for us is not something that we have earned or something that we deserve. It's an inheritance out of love. And even more powerful than just an inheritance out of love, we turn back to earlier in Ephesians, whenever it says uh, that we were destined for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of God's will. Right? We were destined for this inheritance not because it directly pertains to us, but because God has chosen us. That God has called us loved. This is that glorious inheritance among the saints. This glorious inheritance of a life of forgiveness to live for holiness now and an eternal life established in the praise of God's grace and glory. Then Ephesians directs us to the immeasurable greatness of God's power for us. This is an odd expression. The immeasurable greatness of God's power for us. Because you see, we profess an omnipotent God. Right? That means we, we believe in a God who has perfect power or is all-powerful. But we have a very misconstrued understanding of power in our world. Power is a way to dominate. Power is a way to control. Power is a way to make things the way I want to make them. I mean, have you ever seen a human being with power? It's not pretty. There's a reason why we say power corrupts. We ourselves have a corrupted view of power, but God's power is something quite different. And we have to look back across the course of Scripture. So let's go Genesis to Revelation for a moment here and look at the ways God uses power. We begin in Genesis. And what's the first act of God's power? Creation. The power of God is a creating power. Then we get to Exodus and God's power is one of guidance. We have this burning bush that doesn't actually burn, or this like fire tornado that's leading people in the night. God is guiding the people. We have uh, at one point in Exodus what's called a theophany. God actually reveals God's self to the people. It petrifies them, terrifies them. But God's power is showing up for the guidance of the people to get to their inheritance. 
We look a little bit further in Scripture and we get to see how the power of God is a power of transformation. We see this especially when we get to the prophets. The prophets are constantly calling out the people saying, this is not who God has called you to be. God has not called you to be a people of corruption. God has not called you to be a people of fear. God has not called you to be a people of hatred and violence. God has called you to be a people of love. And we see this act of transformation, this power of transformation continue on uh, all across Scripture. But then we get into the Gospels and we see how God's power is used for presence. Not like presents, like gifts. I guess it could be that. But presence. God becomes manifest in human form, incarnate in Christ Jesus so that, I mean, God breaks all of the laws of physics and, and I imagine like all ethereal transcendent laws of the universe in order to come in human form to be among humanity, to be present with us. God uses God's power for presence. We get into the epistles, all of the other New Testament writings, these letters that are uh, provided for us and we see how the power of God is being used for unification to bring together all believers, Jews and Gentiles, uh, all of those who are just simply seeking the love of Christ and how God's power is that of unification. And then we get into Revelation. I told you we were going to cover the whole Bible. And we get into Revelation and we see how the power of God is seeking out reconciliation. See, I didn't turn to the apocalypse version of Revelation because what God is actually trying to do through all of this is reconciliation, to reconcile us back to God, to bring us back to the fold of love. Do you see how God actually uses power? It's not in the corrupt ways that we believe in power, but it's for creation. It's for guidance, for transformation, for presence, for unification, for reconciliation. God's power being for us means that we are being made holy, sanctified, and even sanctified. God's power is moving us in our hope towards this inheritance. And so, my challenge for us today is to live as saints, to honor the saints. Today, we honor the lives of those who have gone on before us to glory. We light candles in remembrance of them. We reflect on their hope, the glorious inheritance they pursued and God's power for them. And we acknowledge today that the best way to honor their lives on earth is to live as saints ourselves, to embrace hope to celebrate our glorious inheritance in Christ, and to encounter God's power for us. So let us, church, be the people who live as saints to honor the saints. Let us be those people who live the exemplified Christian life, those who live set apart consecrated lives for God, not for this world. Lives set apart from what is easy and comfortable. Lives with a purpose. And let us pray.